0: What is up guys, this is Anthony Sarnelli here from the band Cinematics and you're listening to another episode of Keep It Local, a podcast about the band Cinematics and our endeavors in the local music community in the early 2010s, as well as being a band of college students and deciding ultimately not to uh, make the band a touring professional act um, and just use it as a local band, a side project, a band that is a hobby and not a real job. Um, This next episode is the third installment of the episode, the first of which is whenever I talked about the beginnings of how we created the band, and also the uh, first album we recorded called Passive Heart Attack. The second episode was about our second album called Project Cinematics, and how we expanded our music horizons um, as far as that album went with different genres, and uh, this would lead us into the third album. We did release a third album after our first two in uh, 2014, in July, July 8th, 2014, was whenever our third album, Comfort Zones, came out. And the special thing about this album was it was our first release that was distributed on all platforms online, the uh, professional digital retailers like Spotify and iTunes, which is crazy that iTunes is actually going away now, um, Apple Music, etc., It was, um, back then I didn't have a DistroKid account, I'm actually not even sure if DistroKid existed back then, where you could pay like a small yearly fee for um, all your music to be uploaded on those platforms. I was using CD Baby, and CD Baby was quite expensive to get one singular album on um, all the platforms, so... Whenever we recorded the first two albums, we didn't put them on Spotify and iTunes and whatnot because it was just too expensive. We, a lot of us didn't have jobs. We were in college. We were struggling to make ends meet. Um, we were in a lot of debt. Um, back then, it was just it was a little different. I was actually able to upload all of our original uh, older albums onto those sites later on in life um, in 2017 whenever I got a higher-paying job and was able to do that with the money that um, I made out of my pocket. Um, but getting into it, uh, Comfort Zones was our third album, and it was the first album that we did that with. We actually printed physical copies of the album as well. It was the first time that we used, uh, Disc Makers to print professional-looking hard copies instead of just buying empty CD cases and printing them out of a bedroom. Um, it was in a digipack. It had four-panel artwork on the front, the inside of the front, the, uh, the CD art, and then uh, when, you, when you take the CD out, whatever's underneath it, and then the back as well with the track list. And it was 10 songs long. The uh, idea for Comfort Zones, um, the title actually came to me very early before we even started recording the album. It um, was sort of a passive aggressive um, kind of paranoia I had um, when it being a band in the local music scene uh the younger like early 20s and teens like pop punk scene there was pretty much any band we ever played with was a pop punk band that was um had a distinct image a lot of them were doing the same things not to say that they weren't good or unique or anything it's just that that sort of what was what was that sort of what was in at the time and uh being a ska band even though we didn't have horn players and we kind of looked like a pop punk band um it was still we were kind of like the black sheep I felt anyway, and um, it was hard to connect with people and network. Um, and at the at the same time, like I felt like sort of an insecurity and a jealousy of all these other kids and these other pop punk bands, a lot of which the members were, I thought, more attractive than me. They had better fashion sense. It was just a uh, sort of like a um, an intimidating thing to be in the middle of. Um, and I, I, especially back then, I still do now, but I cared a lot about my image. I cared about, like, how popular the band was and, like, how we were received moving forward by audiences, and I wanted to, like, you know, be as big as possible back then. Um, I was a sophomore in college, and I didn't know what I would be doing out of school, and I was going for, like, a very generic, like, business major, and I, in my heart, I really only wanted to play music, and, um, that's sort of where my thought process went. We, we went different routes in the end, but that's sort of where my thought processes were at the time. So getting into it, um, we started recording the album. Um, it was kind of funny how it happened. Um, we, we started recording the album in early 2014. So we had just released Project Cinematics in October of 2013 and we played a couple local shows we had a cd release party for it we were sort of getting our feet wet in the music scene still um we were barely pulling maybe like 30 people at a show if that usually and usually we played first on all the shows that we were added to so really there wasn't a whole lot of notoriety going around i tried to make us look as legit as possible on the internet even though we weren't that popular of a local band um it ended up working out okay in the end but uh, Comfort Zones was sort of when we kind of made a little bit of a breakthrough in the scene. We started playing not just any local show, but, like, the right local shows that made people remember us. Play Playing with, like, even though we were playing with still mostly pop-punk bands, playing with the bands that sounded enough like us that, like, their fans would remember us. And uh, a couple months into having the CD out, we were just giving it away. Um, at that point, we knew that, like we were getting more traction from just people, like, listening to us for free and giving the CD away for free that we kind of just cut our losses and, um, didn't want to really make money off of the CD. It ended up, I couldn't imagine us being any more popular by selling the CD and reinvesting our money we made from it. I think giving it away for free gave us enough buzz that it was worth it. That's just my opinion. I don't really know. This was, like, five years ago now. Um, but essentially, we started recording the songs just because, um, Sam had written a bunch of songs, uh, a couple songs, I guess. Um, We were both working at Walmart over, like, the Christmas break of, like, the 2013 into 2014 um, Christmas break of college. And he'd shown me a couple, and he had demoed them in Pro Tools and shown me them. And I was like, yeah, let's just make a whole new album. Let's do it. And I was uh, dating a girl at the time, and I didn't have a whole lot. Like I was saying before in, like, the other episode of the podcast... Um, I didn't have a whole lot of inspiration to write, um, the very cynical and, like, relationship-centric songs, um, of, like, Well, why don't you like me back songs that I used to write, so I wasn't really writing any of those, um... But we combined our efforts and we had a lot of my songs and a lot of Sam's songs and then two old songs that we wrote in middle school, like early high school age, that we ended up re-recording and putting on the album. I don't know why we did that. It, they, they're not actually that great songs. They're, they're, it kind of shows that we were like little kids whenever we wrote them in the lyrics. But it was fine and we wanted to see what they would sound like with good recording quality, so we decided to record them over again. Um, if not for those two songs, the album would only have been eight songs. Um, don't really know how much of a difference that makes, but um, that's what would have happened then. So in about February of 2014-ish, we had most of the songs written, and we were ready to record the album, and we were playing a lot of cool local shows, a lot at IUP and a lot in the uh, Jeanette like Greensburg area, with other local pop-punk bands. Local pop-punk bands and local emo, emo bands still sorta existed a lot back then, it's not really like it is now, where there's, like, weird prog, experimental, emo, like, shoegaze bands that, like, are hard to be friends with, and, like, there's barely any bands that exist anymore anyway, it was a little, it was still a little bit saturated back then, there were still a bunch of pop-punk bands just doing their thing, and, um, being poor and touring and trying to get, uh, get better notoriety for themselves, um... We were playing with a lot of those bands, we got their stickers, we like, tra- album traded, just tried to make connections, um, a lot, most of those bands are not together anymore, I couldn't tell you the names of like, like, I could tell you the names of probably like five or six of them which aren't, um, but that's what we were doing, um, we wanted to make the album a concept album and go big with it, um, we had written a lot of the songs to be a ska-centric sound. Um, Not a lot of them were super punk or super metal or anything like we used to do, um, used to experiment with. We wanted to make a very cohesive album, and um, we had just done a Christmas EP that included horns. It was our first cinematics thing we ever did with horns, Um, so we wanted to put horns on the new album too, Comfort Zones, and uh, see what it would sound like. So with the addition of the horns and with the addition of the more ska-centric music... It ended up being like a very, very blatantly like ska, like real big fish sounding ska album. And we wanted to own it. We wanted to stop trying to pretend to be a pop punk band to fit in. We we just wanted to own being a ska band. Boom. Um, and that's what we did. And it, it, it worked out okay, I guess. It's, um, it's still our most listened to full album, um, even on Spotify and stuff. And it's whenever we see people in person who remember our band and have seen us before, it's like the one they remember the most. So... Um, it might have just been because we were playing more whenever it was out, rather than, like, spacing out our shows and playing more sparingly. Or it might have been because it just had the best songs. I don't know. Um, so getting into it, um, the album in February, whenever we started demoing and recording it and had, um, all the songs written, of, we, we tried to make a kickstarter to fund the album um, the this was happening in February 2014 the same exact time as the Ernie Ball Warp Tour contest um, to get your local band on the Vans Warp Tour your your city's date of the Vans Warp Tour we pushed the Warp Tour contest a lot and even though like we didn't have very professional recordings or anything and didn't win we were in i think like 11th or ninth place in popularity out of like 300 bands which was kind of cool for me because like yeah the Trabahabas did that like but we grinded super hard um years ago like in 2011 um and I we were like we had like a number two spot for like a little hanging time um and but we didn't win either because we didn't have very professional recordings or like image or anything um but I did de- I had no idea that cinematics was gonna get that high up in the voting and it was kind of cool um and it gave us some buzz that people listened to us um but we were pushing that super hard and didn't push the Kickstarter a lot. I don't even know we were we were asking for a thousand bucks just to like cover all like the like accessorial fees like the um printing and like the, the mastering and like stuff like that. And um we were still pretty much self recording the album, so it wasn't like we were paying to go to a studio and record it. Um but we didn't really end up making, like, any money off of the Kickstarter. We didn't have a very good online presence for that. We made, like, 80 bucks out of, like, 1,000 bucks. And we just kind of pushed it to the wayside. And when you when you do a Kickstarter, you don't keep the money if you don't hit your goal. So we didn't even see that 85 bucks that we got. Um, but that was fine. Like, we weren't ready. I mean, like, we weren't a very popular local band. We, we didn't have, like... The, the notoriety and, like, fame locally to have that work out for us, which is totally fine, because it was, like, a lesson learned type of thing. There were a couple other local, like, pop-punk bands who were doing it at the time, too, that didn't make their goal either, and there were a couple that did, that, that exceeded their goal. Um, they had a very good marketing for it, and they, they were able to make it work. Um, but no, we weren't able to do that, so we ended up just deciding to do everything we were going to do in the Kickstarter anyway and just use our own money for it. I worked at Walmart that summer and like pocketed a lot of money and just put it towards that. Um, But that's the way that came to be. So getting into it, the um, first song in the album was an instrumental track that, excuse me, Sam wrote. And it was like a fan fairy, sort of like streetlight manifesto-y kind of sounding song. Um, didn't have any words. It leads into the second track. The song is called Celebrities Don't Accept Apologies because I had a thought of that title just at myself because I was uh, thinking of a lot of like passive-aggressive paranoia at the time. I had um, a certain person who was a... It seemed like she was sort of in with the scene and important, and I knew she didn't like me very much. So I um, wanted to get back on her good side, but it ended up never happening. I think she still holds a grudge. Um, so that's sort of where that title came about. Celebrities don't accept apologies, meaning she was more important than me and she didn't accept my apology. And then, um, uh, so that's sort of what that sound sounded like. We incorporated trumpet on the album as well. Chris Dubois, our assistant band director, whenever me and Sam were in high school, Um, became a friend of ours, and he played trumpet on the album. Whenever Sam and I played... Well, Sam, actually. It was my saxophone, but he played all the sax parts. I didn't play any of them. He played tenor and alto saxophone. Um, which is cool. The horns ended up sounding pretty good. Um... But then the second song in the album it goes into a very, like, major key, like, real big, fishy-sounding song called Underdogs Exaggerate Circumstances. And that's the second half of that Celebrities Don't Accept Apologies title. It's Underdogs Exaggerate Circumstances means that, like, yeah, I'm upset about it, and I'm trying to be all, like, cryptic and poetic and, like, passive-aggressive about, like, this person not liking me back whenever I've apologized. But I'm blowing it out of proportion, and I'm letting it upset me more than it should. Um, so it's sort of like a self-awareness thing is, uh, underdogs exaggerate circumstances, um, so that's what that means, that song lyrically used to be called Defend Ska Punk, because I had a girlfriend at the time that I wasn't really writing any, like, uh, like, love songs or, um, like, cynical, like, relationship songs, so I wrote a song about how I was insecure about all the pop punk bands in the scene being cooler than me, um, one band in particular called Take a Breath, um, they were in the scene. We would play with them sometimes. They ended up getting a lot bigger, and I uh, did some cool stuff at bigger shows, and ended up getting like a big online following, and probably sold like a lot of merch and items like that way. Um, they didn't last forever, but like they got that notoriety that I always wanted that we never really got. Um, so I ended up writing about how like bands like that were cooler than us, and I was sad about it, and it was like annoying um, because we could never really break through the mold. Um, being a ska band and being like a little nerdier I guess um, the song was called Defend Ska Punk and the lyrics were about that and I name drop a lot of trendy pop punk bands at the time in the song um, in the uh, the chorus it goes Lost in Suburbia How Am I Supposed to Handle Ya? which is a reference to uh, Suburbia a Wonder Years album and um, Greatest Generation which is another Wonder Years album and I go um, greatest Generation, Wrapped Up in What I Don't See, um, Greatest Generation, a Wonder Years album, and What You Don't See is a Story So Far album. Um, in the second verse, I name drop um, Drop Out of Life, which is a This Time Next Year album, uh, Quicksand story so, story so Far song, uh, Real Talk, Man Overboard album, Heart Attack, Man Overboard album drowned citizen song so that's all in that kind of emo pop punk scene that was really popular at the time and still sort of is um the pop punk a little lesser but the emo stuff is still really popular um me name dropping all of that and basically saying that like ska should be as cool it should be in the same category but it isn't and people like it less for some reason who knows why um maybe because all of the local bands that tried to do it in 1997 sucked so bad i don't know um but here we are Um, so that's the second song, Underdogs Exaggerate Circumstances. The third song is called Jump Off a Bridge, and that is a song that Sam wrote, and, um, it's a really good song, I really like it, I didn't really write any of it at all. He wrote the horn parts, he wrote the guitar parts, he sings in it, I do the harmonies. My low voice in the harmonies kind of sounds weird, he probably should have just done the harmonies himself, um, but it sort of reminds me, like, of a Goldfinger song, like, it's like pop-punk ska, sort of reminds me of, like, Here in Your Bedroom by Goldfinger. the horn part again with the trumpet sounds really good saxophones all layered on um don't really know what he wrote it about lyrically um the lyrics um i think were about a relationship he was in at the time and wanted to get out of or just didn't he was like jaded about don't know i can't really speak for him um but that song was kind of cool because we were friends with a local band at the time called wilhelm that uh luke their singer um made, uh, he did, like, videography, not videography, but, like, graphic design and, like, video projects, so he made a lyric video for the song, and, um, it got a couple hundred hits on YouTube, like, pretty quickly, and, like, we had never done a lyric video before, so people seemed to like it and react to it, meanwhile, this is in 2014, like, before Everybody was doing lyric videos, so if you put a lyric video on, like, Facebook or something, people would, like, go, like, whoa, what's that? Now, if you put a lyric video on Facebook, nobody cares. But back then, it, like, cared. it mattered more. In that summer, whenever we had, we had played a show with Wilhelm, all their friends and, like, their band, like, jammed to the song and, like, sang along to it because they had made that lyric video and knew all the words to it, which is kind of cool. I remember, that was a very fond memory I have. Um, but, uh, that's, uh, what that song was, Jump Off a Bridge. The fourth song in the album is called Four, and this one was interesting because it was a very, like, Streetlight Manifesto-y, like, big horn saxophone, like, fairy song, uh, minor key, really intense, um, the music was written for it, for the band, the Traba our old band, who did a lot more, like, Streetlight Manifesto-y sounding songs, um, and Sam was just like, let's fucking record it, let's do it. Let's uh, make it a cinematic song. I have some lyrics. So Sam laid down all the horn parts. We ended up not doing trumpet on this one. It was just saxophones. Um, but the horns still sound pretty strong. Um, the lyrics Sam had, he had recorded. And um, they were pretty good. And this was at the point where like, the album was almost done. And I was pressuring him to be finished with it by July. So at that point... like it was hard for me to pressure sam to write more lyrics so i one night whenever he was taking his girlfriend home i was just like you know what fuck it i'll write all the lyrics by the time you come back we'll record them so i wrote all the lyrics literally about nothing um tried to make them as cryptic and vague as possible so i wrote the verses of the song and we he ended up coming back like super late from dropping off his girlfriend at her house and um I was, like, so ready and mad to, like, record the song as fast as possible, and he was like, I'm going to bed, no, not doing it, so we ended up recording it, like, a day later or whatever, it was fine, I was probably a little bit more mad than I should have been, it takes, he does a lot of work on those albums, and he took so much time out of his life doing all the mastering and mixing and, uh, all the mathematical stuff that goes along with engineering the project, um, but that's what that song ended up being for, um, and, uh, it's sort of like a fan favorite. We've never been able to play it live. We just never learned it for the rest of our band, Devin and Colin. Um, some of my friends have liked it a lot. It has like a really big, huge outro on the horn part. Um, but that takes us to track five. Um, and track five is the Riddle House. It's a song that we had already recorded, um, on Project Cinematics. It was a song that I wrote, uh, sort of about the situation I had with my ex-girlfriend and how her band, um, long time ago, was a lot more popular than mine, and I was jealous, and I didn't know how to kind of channel that jealousy, Um, we we didn't really re-record it, we copied and pasted all the guitars and vocals, and then just re-amped it with the gear that we re-amped this album with, and we didn't really mix it too well, so what ended up happening was the vocals are a little quieter, and like, as edited sounding as the rest of the song so I don't really even like listening to this version of the song I like listening to the Project Cinematic song because it sounds more like the vocals are louder and you can hear what's going on and Andrew Dinger in Cabaret Runaway the singer of that band who we would play with all the time is not in the Comfort Zones version I think because he convinced us that they had signed a record deal with Revival Recordings and was not allowed to like appear or like put his name or music in any other bands besides Cabaret Runaway So we just kind of, like, listened to that and was like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be in this version. Um, That's okay. Um, So we put a guitar solo there instead. And um, so, yeah, in Comfort Zones, Riddle House was on iTunes and Spotify before anything else, uh, even though it wasn't, like, the best version of the song. Um, That brings us to the middle of the album. The two songs in the middle of the album are the old ones I was talking about that we sort of wrote in, like, 8th, ninth grade time era, um, the first of which was called All My So-Called Friends Are At A Party That I Wasn't Invited To, which was like the first song I ever wrote the music and lyrics to, um, which is funny um, because this is the 10-year anniversary of that song. Today, June 12th, 2019, it has been 10 years since I wrote that song. I had Facebook memories pop up today that said, we fucking did it 10 years ago, wrote wrote a song. I wrote the music and the lyrics to it. And it was not very good, um, and it was... Obnoxious, and it had, like, three verses and a really long, weird key change at the end. I thought it was the coolest thing ever, and it really wasn't. And um, I don't know why we decided to re-record it for this album, because it was truly a juvenile and not very, not a very good song. I guess our curiosity of how good it would sound with a good recording quality with Sam's new gear and his know-how would uh, was curious of how it would sound. So we recorded it. I sang on it, Sam sang some of the parts that he'd never sang before on it, we put the horn parts in it, It had the pretty good, glossy, like, mastering Ozone stuff Sam put on the album, and it, yeah, it sounded better than it ever had before, but it was still not a very good song, um, I don't know why I love the song so much at the time, I was a little kid, um, that's all I'll say about that, and the next song, uh, which is track seven, Got No Chance, um, this song was also from that time period, like, eighth, ninth grade era, um, I wrote the song. It's lyrics about a girl that I liked in ninth grade that um, didn't like me back, and I was really sad about it. And I wrote like really cryptic, vague, sad lyrics, and um, that ended up being sort of angry lyrics um, over like an acoustic, like slow, like uh, major key, like sappy song. And Sam was like, "Fuck no, let's not do that. Let's put it to this fast-paced, like punk rock music that sounds." almost identical to last one out of Liberty city by less than Jake. Cause Sam was a bass player and he loved the baseline in that song. And I'm sure that's where he took a lot of his influence from. Um, so we recorded that in like the high school, like early high school, middle school era of our band, um, which back then was called running with scissors. Um, and we recorded it and it sounded awful. And then we redid it for the Trabahabas and, um, we called it screws cause, um, uh, Johnny put like a very different ending vocal part that like was like and you know I'm screwed um, that was in the original lyrics but like at the very end of the song he goes on like this crazy like Operation Ivy sounding like ska punk rant that I don't sing in any of the version of the song that I did um, so it was called Screws during the Trouble we played it and then we recorded again for Cinemax and changed the name back to Got No Chance but that's what that song was about um, which leaves us to the last three songs on the album track eight was if I remember correctly sell me this pen okay so yeah this song was taken exactly from uh, whenever I in like 2013 watched the movie Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio a movie about Jordan Belfort and how he became really rich and crazy and like basically could do whatever he wanted and then got in trouble for like doing that shit at the end um but he wrote a book and turned into a great movie um everybody loves that movie it's awesome um very end of the movie, uh, whenever he like finally gets out of jail and like like his whole life story like becomes like of like a legend of how good of a salesman he was. He like teaches people, um, and at the very end of the movie, he like holds up this pen to like all these people that are like being lectured by him on how to sell. And he's like, "Sell me this pen," as if like being like very condescending, and like to know how to sell, you have to like jump out and like already know how to do it and be like, you know on the seat of your pants, like, and just, he has a super condescending look on his face, like, like, I'm better than you, like, you'll never know how to do this, like, this is how intense it is, really powerful stuff, um, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation, I'm a salesman, that's my job, um, I, it, again, that, like, resonates with me, like, hardcore, um, I wouldn't know what to say if he did that to me, you know, it's crazy, like, how cool, and, like, like, just, talented this guy was with like wordplay and shit and like knowing what to say. Um but basically the lyrics of this it's a very like happy like real big fishy sounding song. Um and the lyrics are really repetitive and it's just ba- like basically like if I had the world whatever I wanted is that the more the most moral thing? Like what would I be moral? Would I do the right thing if I had whatever I wanted essentially? Um I thought that was an interesting, different, weird song for me to write about since most of my songs are about, like, relationships and being, like, really sad and vague. Um, But that's what that one was about. Um, We had never really played it live. We played it once. Um, We didn't really practice it a lot. Like, I think our drummer, like, didn't have it super memorized. So we only played it one time um, and then just forgot about it. But the next song on the album is In My Head and this is a really cool song, it's a longer one, Sam wrote it, he wrote all the lyrics, he wrote the music, it's very, like, I think it's sort of, like, Goldfinger-esque hang-ups, Goldfinger 1998 era, like, sounding music, it's got the horns, um, it's a little repetitive, I think, like, the time, it goes into, like, the chorus, like, four times at the end, it's, like, crazy long, um, but, uh, I don't really know what the lyrics are about. I think they're about a specific ex-girlfriend he had and how, like, his relationship was, like, put him through a lot of turmoil um, as far as that went. And the song is sort of about suicide, it sounds like. Um, But I don't really know. Um, At the very end of the song, it goes out of being um, super punky and, like, pop punky, like Goldfinger with horns kind of stuff. And um, does this, like... Weird time signature change and like the clean ska guitar, and then it like opens up into this huge like fanfare with the horns, with the trumpet and everything. And it sounds really cool. The horns could have been tuned a little bit better. You can kind of tell that they're a little out of tune um, in the recording, but it's it still is a cool part. And it very 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 similarly connects to a specific song on Hands That Thieve by Streetlight Manifesto. Um, I forget what song, I think it's the song, Hands of Thief, that it sort of reminds me of. It just opens up into this, like, weird, fan like, strong horn part thing. Um, that's, like, not very common in cinematics music. But, that's where it goes. And then he repeats the end, the chorus, like, a lot, and, um, it ends pretty strongly. Um, this is a song where his, Sam's vocals sort of sound Bayside-esque, um, don't really know who told me that one time, but I see it, like, so whoever told me that you're kind of right, I believe you um it was, um, uh, that's one of my favorite songs of the album, I wish we could have taken a little bit more time to edit the recording of it and make it sound, tweak it a little bit better but it's a cool song and it was really hard to learn, we had never really played it live or learned it, but I wish we would have, um and then, uh, we're wrap, we're coming up on about a half hour here Um, the last song on the album is Sanjo, which I don't know why it's called that, but it was an instrumental song that we decided to include that John, the singer of the Trabahabas wrote, um, for the Trabahabas. It was a very, like, um, Latin sort of sounding, like, horn-driven song, uh, that was, like, minor key, like a fanfare song. Um, it sounds, uh, super, like, hispanic latin whatever you want to say um with the horns and like the minor key like chords um he wrote it all sam didn't even really write the horn parts to it john wrote everything and we just copied it we asked him for his permission can we record this song and he was like yeah go ahead um so we recorded it with good recording quality um i don't think yeah there's trumpet on it there's everything there's the tenor sax the alto sax and the trumpet and um I don't think that the horns were performed perfectly, um, they they sounded better in like the fake MIDI demo recording of it, um, but we tried our best, it was a very hard to play song, um, so I kind of wish that we had a better execution of it, but it doesn't sound bad, it sounds pretty intense, um, and and it's quite an accomplishment that we were able to perform it and record it, um, uh, so if you listen to that song on the album, that's where that one came from, and, uh, that is the end of the album. There's really not much else to say. Um, we had uh, been giving away this album from basically a couple months after we released it at local shows all the way until like February of 2015 ish. So, about a year's time between whenever we were like writing the album and like finishing it up and to whenever we released it and like we ran out of them. Yeah, we ran out of them um, while we were recording our next album. Uh, affinities in like the 2015 era of our band which is sort of a weird era because we um, try I tried to make us more serious but we were like playing less shows and um, it was just kind of like a, a pulling teeth kind of situation um, we had ran out of giving away the album by that time so that's that's for another day um, the next episode we'll talk about affinities um, but thanks for listening. Um, that is Comfort Zones by Cinematics. Check it out on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you stream music. It was our 2014 album. Uh, had a lot of fun making it. It pretty much defined the most, like, active era of our band. Um, and 2014 was honestly the best summer of my life. I had the most fun. I was, um like always stressed out and depressed about like girls and like being half an adult at that point like um and I was taking it for granted at the time but looking back um it was so much fun and that was those are very fond memories of this album that the that era of our band and like who we hung out with back then um so thanks for listening um I will catch you next time this is the keep it local podcast with Anthony Sarnelli from Cinematics thanks again